Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Troy Noons is an Absolute Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casillo, and with me today is Dan Lyons. Hello, everyone. Happy uh, week. Happy week. Yeah, that's a good one, actually. That's that's probably we, the we most made it to another. <laughs> we did it. We uh, we only have three games left in this god awful football season, uh, which I think is is something. I mean, yeah, maybe we can win three straight games. I'm not banking on it by any means. Um, but I think most of us are just hoping it's over at this point. Yeah, I mean, I think we're at the point where obviously you try to go 3-0 and and make a bowl. But I guess like beyond that, you kind of treat it like what you would have treated bowl practice and get some of the red the freshmen whose red shirts you have not burned some run just to see what they look like and and hopefully develop some off the line players, um, which I think we'll get into here. Uh, but yeah, honestly, it's, it's, you know, we've said a lot about the season throughout the, the, the past week, it's continued to kind of go along this really unfortunate trajectory, um, albeit in very different ways, uh, you know, week to week at this point, but yeah, I mean, that's all you really can do. It's, it's, I don't think there's any real chance of us moving on to Babers. I think anyone who thinks that is like getting really aggressive, but Obviously, everyone here is disappointed, and uh, you try to make the best of what you can with this last month of the year. Yeah, I mean, we've definitely talked about the disappointment factor a lot. We've talked about it from the larger fan base standpoint, from even just like you and me being longtime, you know, football first observers, and kind of like what this season has, why this season just been like so crushing, uh, especially given like last season's uh, success. I, I think that you know, I think we, we might as well get started with what happened on Sunday before we get into what happened on Saturday and what's going to happen going forward. Um, on Sunday, it was announced that Brian Ward will not be um, Syracuse's defense coordinator anymore. Uh, he's been let go. I think that, and I mentioned this on the site a couple of times, like I think Dino needed a little bit of a scapegoat and that's not to say that the Ward wasn't a deserving one. Um, I think Ward actually kind of handed Dino the ammo he needed to either, um, get rid of him or Mike Lynch, uh, our offensive coordinator. I think both coaches and the entire coaching staff has underperformed this year. Uh, I think Lynch and Ward in particular had been, um, had been guys that, that you can definitely point to as, as ones who haven't necessarily met expectations, especially relative to what they did last year. I, I think if you look at um, like what Lynch has done this year, I think there's definitely much to be desired in terms of, um, offensive execution, but I think some of that could maybe potentially be, you know, pointed to from an offensive line perspective. I think with Ward, you know, he had really two bad games and a couple other lesser games, but the two bad games, Maryland and BC, um, stick out. After the BC game, Steve Adazio said that uh, he basically ran the same play 30 times because Syracuse wouldn't adjust. And really, if Dino hadn't been thinking of uh, getting rid of Ward at that point, uh, I, I feel like that was really all he needed because realistically, um, as much as Mike Cavanaugh is definitely the assistant coach who seems most likely to be gone after this season, um, that's not a big enough head to roll uh, when probably looking at, you know, John Wildhack and looking at a lot of the big name boosters who probably wanted something uh, to be addressed, you know, a- after such a debilitating loss at the Dome on Saturday. Yeah, I think that's really the sticking point. Like, Ultimately, you know, replacing your DC at this point in the season probably doesn't really do anything super effective um, in terms of like on-field performance. You know, maybe guys get like a jolt for a week or two, but like I can't imagine it's going to drastically improve our performance 
but it does kind of send the signal to the fan base, which I think, you know, especially one, and there's definitely like a huge part of it that was really looking for like, hey, something is going to change, right? We're not just going to roll into next year saying like, whoops, this wasn't good. Um, and I was still a little surprised to see Ward go after this week, but like, I think for uh, for for what you can say about the NCC and the uh, and the pit games where the defense really kept us in it, like the the last two games, or not the last two, the uh, the Maryland and the uh, and the BC game, and then to a lesser extent the Florida State game are like they're they're bad. Like you can't you can't give up 100 and, you know 120 points to the combination of BC and Maryland. Like that just can't happen. Those are not like maybe not both uh, either one. They both may not be both teams, which is like a total disaster. So. Um, yeah, I think in a different world, like maybe spread those points out a little bit more, and it's less glaring. But but just how bad that performance was, plus the Adazio quote that you brought up, um, made it pretty easy to move out from this week. And and now we see where we go in the off season. Um, I think my biggest concern, and you know maybe it's been slightly quelled by the reports of what we think um, our Babers contract details and whatnot, are that we're going to just kind of roll with the same level of assistant pay we believe that we've had the last couple of years. And I think, honestly, if we want to really put our best foot forward here, we're going to need to up that level too. You can't just go in, you know, with middling Big East level football pay, uh, you know, however many years after we've that leave, we want to be competitive in the ACC. And maybe we've gotten Babers to that point, but part of it's getting the assistant pool to that point as well. And I think it's a good opportunity to kind of signal our uh, our dedication to actually making this like a full bore thing versus just like, oh, we'll keep Babers around, but, you know, give him kind of, uh, pins to, to spread around to the rest of his crew. Yeah, I think that's critical, really, is like it, there's just a big, big difference between, you know, having a, a truckload of money to throw at your your head coach versus having, you know, far more cash to throw around to his uh, assistants. I think some of the best uh, head coaches in the country, uh, you know, you see them having highly paid assistants. Um, I think Clemson being the most notable um, example with Brent Venables, who's done a really good job of transforming that Clemson defense from a group that, you know, allowed 70 against West Virginia in the orange bowl to one that is now, you know, year over year, uh, the most consistent and best group in the country. I, I think, you know, we're, we're not expecting to spend a million dollars on defense coordinator and hire the next Brent Venables, but, you know, Dino, to me, at least this move did show an ability to kind of get past the family band aspect um, and, and not just sit on the same group of guys because they're the guys who got him here. I, I think that that's a good sign going forward. I think that there's a bunch of coaches on the staff that are uh, that are kind of under uh, the microscope this offseason. I don't think we see necessarily all of them um, out the door. I think there's a couple that are definitely staying. Well, at least if SU has anything to do with it, they stay. If they get better offers, who knows? But I, I do think that this is a sign that if if given the the, the money to toss at better assistance um, and, and, and improving the assistant coach pool, I, I think that Dino this does signal that Dino is ready to do it. I, I think that now, you know, we just have to decide like how, how, how much can we put towards assistant? How much is this an emphasis? Um, who exactly can we hire? And we're not really going to know that, you know, list or even close to that list um, until, you know, probably first week of December. And even then it's only going to be tentative, but I do think that like for from the standpoint of like who can we hire realistically, um, I think you just kind of have to overgeneralize right now of, um, you know, rising coordinators. Um, well, I think yeah, rising coordinators and, and at the G five level, 
and, you know, rising position coaches at, at the P5 level. Um, I, I think that SU ideally would want somebody who um, has experience. I think we've seen this before that like when you look at Schaefer's staff, a lot of guys didn't necessarily have experience in the roles they were plugged into, um, struggled a bunch. Meanwhile, you know, under Babers, Babers obviously was a head coach before, uh, so was able to kind of plug uh, himself and his scheme and his guys in. I, I, I think there's a lot of ways we can cut this, but uh, the, the most important thing to me is probably at least some experience because next year I think is really critical for, for Babers' tenure, and I think he understands that, and that's probably why he ends up going probably the more experienced DC route um, versus a position coach who may not have held that role before. Yeah, it's going to be a really fascinating move in general, and I expect this not to be the only uh, big shakeup. I think offensive line, like you, you have to make a change there. I just don't think there's any choice. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me to see uh, an offensive coordinator move. It wouldn't surprise me to see a couple other uh, assistant moves. Um, but like you know, Babers came in with a pretty much a full staff and has made maybe what one move at offensive line, and then obviously had to bump someone up for OC. But it hasn't been. Uh, he hasn't proactively made any moves. Yeah. And and also, like, even going back, Schaefer didn't really make that many. I mean, he fired McDonald, but, like, Schaefer's moves were all very in-family, even if they weren't the same family that he brought from Syracuse. It was still guys he had a background with. We had that, like, pack to bring over um, had he got in the head coaching job. So we, we kind of had these last two head coaches bring pretty fully formed staffs. I think Marone was the last one who had to really build out a staff, and I would argue that he probably – at least, you know, obviously we're having this one first, like these first, like real crises of confidence of Babers. But I think Marone's staff was like more of what you see someone having to go through the motion to actually find and identify the right people versus like, you know, this guy worked out at Eastern Illinois and Bowling Green. Well, you know, we're at Syracuse now. It's a little different uh, of a thing. Um, so I'm, I'm really fascinated to see it because it is something he hasn't had to do with the head coach more than maybe a handful of times through three positions now. Um, so, and I don't, honestly, I, I don't think having to put him on his toes or having to put him into like a, a sense of, uh, if not insecurity, like uh, a little uncomfortability is the, the worst thing. Like he really hasn't faced the kind of adversity in terms of like being a head coach with a losing record um, that some others have. And, and, you know, that's been an open question um, entering this year. Obviously we had higher expectations for this year, but like the first two seasons, I think he rightfully stated on, it was a rebuild and he was getting them to a place where they could be competitive. And I, I still hold by that. And I think some people are holding those first two years against him, which I think is kind of unfair based on how this year has gone. But um, this year, I think you do have to hold against him. I mean, it's his baby now. He has, he's had the rebuild, even if there's some um, like maybe low level depth issues, like he's on the sports recruiting class that you're kind of over the, you're, you're well outside the range of the, uh, of the honeymoon phase. So um, I'm going to be fascinated. And I think it'll tell you a lot about, you know, what Babers does as like, you know, almost like a wartime president versus like a peacetime president. Like it's very easy to like do your own rebuild and have your first winning season. But what happens when your own struggles kind of come to for- come to bear? Um, so we'll see what he has. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point there. I think, you know, making him feel a little uneasy. Um, it's not that like, I, I mean, you and I, neither of us want Babers gone. I think a lot of people don't want Babers gone. Everyone wants Babers to succeed. I think this is really the might be the first time that he's like proactively, you know, replacing someone as a head coach. And, and, and that to me, like is fascinating because it's going to tell us a lot about, I think, uh, you know, John Wildhack's tenure is going to tell us a lot about Dino Babers tenure um, as a head football coach. I, I think, again, I think Dino understands what's at stake here. Um, and 
you know, ho- hopefully he responds accordingly. Cause now, yeah, like given, given what we know, um, about, you know, his, his, you know, long record as an assistant, how in different places he's been, how he's only really been like beholden to this system for, for 10 years or so. Uh, I'm curious to see what direction he decides to go in and, you know, whether again, if he, he switches up things on offense, whether he decides that, you know, his system can be tweaked a bit. I think for as much as, for as much as I like the fully baked system coming in, I do think that the best coaches in the country, even guys with the system, are willing to kind of roll with the punches a little bit. And I think Dino's been um, rightfully static. I, I think at this point, though, since this is the first time there's really like some doubts you can shed on his head coaching uh, career, I, I think it's I think it's worth shaking things up. Not to say I want to get rid of the you know kind of up tempo, uh, spread inspired type offense because I don't. Um, but I'm curious to see if maybe injecting some new thinking. Um, from outside of his, you know, direct family tree necessarily uh, could be exactly what this group needs. Yeah, I'm going to make a very, a very problematic comparison here, but it makes sense in Babers' coaching lineage. Um, if you'll remember, and I like Babers' system when it's working, and I think, I, you know, ideally, I think what we saw last year, especially when DeVito was in, like, is the kind of football I want to see but I do think he needs to kind of stay on his toes and be a little adaptable. Um, I'm, I'm going to compare it to uh, years back when uh, Art Bryles was still at Baylor and he had, I think, multiple quarterback injuries. Yeah, it was like three or damage, four of them. And he had a damage against Texas where they ended up just basically midweek shifting to uh, essentially like a full wishbone and just didn't throw the ball more than a couple times. And they ran the ball for like uh, – someone should look up the buffer. I didn't think of it ahead of time to do it. But they ran for like four something hundred yards, I think, and basically ran a full like old school wishbone and beat Texas. And like that's the I mean, again, problems with him aside, that's the kind of guy. That's the guy who he kind of came into this offensive mindset from. And I would hope that obviously you don't hope for anything that drastic, but he would have the same kind of adaptability and uh, more like you know connection and. Uh, Staying dedicated to winning the game versus like this is exactly what we have to do every game, and if it doesn't work out, then you know it's that sucks because ultimately, like while I really like the system uh, as it's described on paper, I'm way more concerned with actually winning football, and hopefully he has that kind of same drive to adapt and kind of do the best thing for the team in a given moment than than just you know staying with the system and if it doesn't work, then you know you're screwed for a weekend. Oh, yeah. And I think that's something that we've seen a lot, um, win or lose at Syracuse. I think that, you know, the Tampa 2 is, is a perfect example of that as well. I'm sure that whoever replaces Ward is probably not running that system. Um, I think we see something that's maybe a little bit more blitz heavy, a little more um, turnover driven, because that's what we've, because that's what works with tempo. Um, and that's something that did work last year and worked in, in, in pieces this year. And we have the, the athletes to do it now. Versus maybe, you know, some of the time with Schaefer when we didn't necessarily have the athletes to do it at the ACC level. Um, I will throw this out there. The one, my one concern, and I, 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 I'm going to, I'll give Dino Babers the benefit of the doubt here, and I'll give John Wildhack the benefit of the doubt as well. Um, one name that's going to be out there as an offense coordinator hire, if they decide to change up the offense, um, should not be hired. Um, and that name would be Kendall Bryles, who, uh, is on Florida State staff, but Willie Taggart's gone, so Bryles is not going to be around. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and say, like, Kendall Bryles, I think, 
is skating on his dad's name a lot. Like, he wasn't that great at Houston, and he hasn't been that great at Florida State. That's fair. And I'm I not going to mention Art either. I know that. <laughs> but I'm saying people people are treating Kendall Bryles like he's his father football-wise, and I think that's unfair. Because Kendall hasn't done real, hasn't really accomplished that much. Outside, like the Houston team was okay, and Florida State had you know their best moment was against us, which you know great. We just fired our DC for a reason. But um, I think Kendall Bryles like might be the most overrated offensive coordinator in the country. Yeah, I buy that. I only bring him up not because I actually like think he's all that good, just because I know that. Oh, it was going to happen. Like people were going to bring it up, whether or not it's realistic. Oh yeah, because yeah, I mean realistically, like all the other stuff aside, if Babers says who's the person that's going to be able to run my offense well in year one, like yeah, Kendall Bryles is probably that guy. But again, like do not hire him. I I I'm ninety nine percent positive that Dino knows well enough not to hire him. And I'm 100% sure that John Wildhack knows well enough not to hire It's just like, there are other offensive coordinators out there. And like, he's just not, if you could say like, with a guarantee that hiring him would undo everything bad that happened this year and you would get back to like the 10-win level, I still know that'd be worth it. But at least then you were getting some guarantee when like Florida State just hired Willie Tackert with Kendall Browns as OC. And it's just, he's not this plug and play dynamo expert offensive mind. He's just like, has a good last name and was part of Baber's staff. So I would get, I get the connection and I, people are definitely going to ask that question. But also like if you just erased his last name and said, Hey, Syracuse just hired the offensive coordinator of the head coach who got fired the same week we fired our DC. Like that's the optics aren't good there either. Like it's just not like any, it's not inspiring outside of like his last name brings uh, some weight in both directions. I completely agree. Um, rather than like rehash the BC game, uh, because I don't think either of us really want to do that to ourselves, and I don't think anyone listening wants to either. Um, one thing I wanted to consider was something that you had brought up, uh, which is, you know, kind of which young guys are we going to see more on the field um, toward the end of this season? Obviously, like, we haven't thrown in the towel yet. I don't think we're going to see a full influx of freshmen and, and guys like that um, until, you know, we potentially lose to Duke, or if we last longer than that, we'll see. But um, I know one guy who we did see um, extended minutes from uh, on uh, Saturday was Jawar Jordan. I thought he looked great. I think part of that's obviously that there was no tape on him. Uh, so that was a smart move for Dino to, to, to roll out someone like that um, in that game. But Jawar Jordan seems like a potential option for the future and one that we could start seeing more carries go to. I mean, I love Moniel, but I think you're starting to see the offense trend a little bit more toward um, like Jarvie and Howard, Abdul Adams, guys who are going to be here next year um, in the running game. And that probably means that Jordan gets the call up um, a bit to get a little bit more involved. He's super fast. I mean, that one run around the edge, uh, he looked fantastic and he really just ran away from all of BC's defense. I know BC's defense sucks, but at the same time, like that speed isn't necessarily something that like is influenced by um, who you're up against. I think, you know, obviously the the defensive backs have looked rough at times this year. So maybe we see someone like, you know, Neil Nunn. Um, I don't think we've seen Adrian Cole a ton out there uh, so far this year. I think the linebackers could definitely use a change up as we've mentioned numerous times on here. So I'd love to see, um, you know, Lee Pogba or Jeff Canton or someone like that, you know, get out there and, and maybe take some snaps, try to change things up um, as, as we're looking to, uh 
you know, get some better results. Obviously, one of the biggest issues we we all had with Brian Ward was that he he kind of refused to to adjust a bit. And this year in particular, when the linebackers looked pretty poor um, in several games, they looked really bad in the first half. This one, and then nothing really changed in the second half. Like I wouldn't worst worst case, you look exactly the same, and you're getting some valuable experience for kids who are going to be um, you know the the potential like stalwarts of the middle of this defense for the next couple seasons. Yeah, honestly, and this is like very probably overly pragmatic, but if and when you lose game seven, I think at that point, like there's no real difference in winning three or winning five. And you just I think there's more value in treating this like like really valuable training camp um or like those bowl practices we would have hopefully gotten. Uh and you run out your Michael Jones, your League Padva. Um I I loved what I saw from Jawar Jordan, super explosive and like he really jumped a like not expecting him to to be in the game or like kind of forgetting about him being an option for this game. He was one of those guys whose speed really jumped off the page, like kind of like when you see. But there are there are certain players in the league where, when they have the ball in their hands and they just kind of like explode with it, they don't look like everyone else in the field. And obviously, I don't expect him to be like Cam Akers next year, but it kind of had that one look for at least a play where like he was just like flying and looked like a different level athlete and that's tie dye we we were hoping we were getting and obviously like they weren't i don't think bc was super expecting it but having that kind of game breaking speed and then like you said mo i, I love Moniel. i think moniel has been a really important player alongside like Aaron dungy's the uh uh or phillips steve ishmael's like i think though that whole class has this really stark important moment in uh syracuse football history and like getting us to the point where we had last year but I even think about Mo would understand, like, hey, we're getting guys from next year. Like, we're still going to use you. You're going to be able to put you – have, you have tons of film. Like, Mo, Mo's run the ball a lot for us. Um, I think, like, for the greater good, you're, you're getting your guys that are going to be here next year, some reps, while still, like, doing right by him and getting him his snaps as well. So, I do think that's, like, a mix you can get. But, like, honestly, if we lose to Duke, and I'm not going to just put it on paper because I still think the ACC is so topsy-turvy that we could beat anyone else in our schedule um, – I think you just say like, hey, you know, we're, let's set the guys reps and, and we're going to start building for 2020 because what else can you do? Yeah, I completely agree. Like I said, at this point, it really can't get worse at, an, at a number of positions. Um, some of the things we've seen from the defensive backs this year, aside from Melifon Wu and, and Cisco, have been um, downright puzzling. I think what we've seen from the, the middle of the defensive line has been tough at times um, as we've, you know, had to weather the storm without McKinley Williams. Um Dan, if you were five and six going into the Wake Forest game and knowing that Wake Forest is potentially going to be in the top 25 still, is going to be looking for an orange bowl bid, um, would you burn a shirt for Jordan or guys like that, uh, knowing that Jordan is one of a few guys that already has a game under his belt with three to play? Um, do you think it's worth trying to – do you think it's worth burning the shirt just to maybe go six and six? Honestly, I think at that point you do. I think at that point it's hard to like – take it's hard to like take the uh or put the uh cap back on the bottle or whatever or the cork or whatever I, I think at that point if you can get to a bowl there's enough ancillary benefits and the and the optics of going of going from three and six to six and six and recovering i think would be pretty big so if you think you can make a difference in winning the game i think you'd have to consider doing it um but that's the big if. like you have to win the next two yeah and i mean it's like it's mostly us just getting ahead of ourselves at this point because yeah, there's a there's quite a road ahead of us before we potentially get to to six and six, or even 
four and six, really. I, I think uh, I think the Syracuse team has has not really shown us a ton of signs that they can come back. I think the issue is especially like when you go into pass only mode, which is what SU's been in the second half for majority of its game so far. That's just kind of how you you know derail this entire offense, and we've seen that even in the first two years, even if they were still putting up points. Uh, they were able to, you know, make things happen with screens. They were able to make things happen uh, with other short yards passes. They were able to run the ball with Eric Dungy. And you saw a little bit of running the ball from Tommy DeVito, maybe more than we wanted to um, on Saturday against BC. But like th- th- there's there's got to be, a, you know, a, a time when this offense can turn the page um, and, and be able to, to actually look confident in a comeback. Um, I think the most confident they've looked really when down um, this year has been um, probably that last, those last couple drives against NC State, uh, when NC State's not even that good of a team, but those last couple drives against NC State before derailing themselves with penalties. So, I, I, I that's one thing I would like to see. Um, e- e- again, even even in a loss, I'd like to see a second half offense that looks like that looks like they can actually make the comeback, and not one that looks like it's going to ultimately come up short and just kind of rip our hearts out. Yeah, and that was really, was really disappointing about the Boston College team was, A, we got ahead early, but also I thought, like, especially in the first half, um, I think the offensive line probably looked as good as it has all year, um, especially considering the changes with, with Bergeron in, uh, I think was, even after that, you know, how horrendous the loss ended up being, um, kind of like a, a silver lining. Uh, and, like, it's, it's unfortunate we, we couldn't see, like, the full bore balance offense because, the game just got away from us so quickly versus just like, oh, we fell behind by a touchdown. Like, it just turned from like, you know, it was like on a, on a you know, flip of a coin that it went from uh, we were up by, you know, multiple scores to being down by multiple touchdowns. And that's just a really hard place to actually judge your team from. Yeah, I mean, the offense didn't look amazing in the first half last week, but at least it looked competent enough to make things happen. They were actually capitalizing on uh, advantageous field position. They were calling plays that looked good. I thought the first drive in particular uh, was really impressive. Uh, the defense actually was helping out with um, some turnovers. Uh, you know, I mean, they weren't able to tackle all that well, but they were able to strip the ball a couple times in the first quarter. Uh, that definitely helped us out. But yeah, once once SU fell behind, that was kind of it. Uh, where the offense quickly went to a pass-only um, situation or a, a like very run-heavy situation where it's a lot of you know run, run, pass, punt, um, and a very predictable kind of play-calling um, progression. I, I think that things have been fairly predictable this year, and I don't think SU's offense is is normally all that unpredictable. But you know when when you're not running at tempo and you're not and you're always trailing, things do kind of get you know pretty rote. Um, very quickly and, and defenses have been able to adapt. So I am looking forward to, again, like just something that isn't that. Um, and, you know, maybe that's this year, maybe we have to wait until next year for that. But if we have to wait until next year, um, you have to think there's some sort of big change coming or either Dino is going to take full control of play calling duties or, you know, or Mike Lynch gets another co-OC um, after, you know, having the job by himself for these last two seasons. I don't know, but something's definitely got to give and something needs to look a lot better uh, with regard to the run pass mix uh, with regard to, you know, mixing up play calling in, in different situations. I definitely think that there's, there's, an, there's too much predictability at this point. Um, and if I'm seeing that as, as somebody watching at home, I'm sure that, you know, opposing, you know, defense coordinators are seeing that uh, in droves. 
yeah, I, my one of my biggest questions this whole year has been like kind of how involved is Dino versus uh, Lynch and and like what's the balance there? Because when Dino took over, um, he basically had this whole thing about how he doesn't really look at a play sheet. He kind of calls things by feel. Um, and it seemed like it was pretty much his offense and everyone else was kind of support. But as we've had these str- – hey, hey, I think Sean Lewis um, has done a really nice job at Kent State, like all things considered. That's one of the hardest jobs in college football. And I think he's done a pretty effective job of porting this over to there and, and being competitive and winning some games. And then B, like last year I think was its own thing because we, we hit this like nice rhythm of having all these seniors and, and obviously things peaked well. but. It feels like this year we've gotten a, a bit more of a peek behind the curtain where a lot more is being put on Lynch's shoulders. And I'm not saying it's not uh, it's not legitimate. I just don't know that we've had like a great explanation of what the balance in play calling duties is. It does seem like it's mostly Lynch now. Um, but that's an interesting shift in where it sounded like things were going to be when Babers took over. Um, not that I think that anyone's being like super scapegoated. It just, uh, if like, if we make a big change next year, I do wonder if it'll be like Babers is like, all right, well, this is my offense now. And then, it's very clear where all the blame lies if the play calling isn't good. Yeah, I completely agree. I definitely think that that's something that's going to get sussed out in the next 12 to 15 games. We, uh, we shall see soon enough, but yeah, right now it doesn't exactly look promising for Lynch given what Lewis is able to do on the Kent state. Um, why don't we, why don't we shift over a little bit to beer um, after hearing from our sponsor and we're back. Uh, we'll do some beer and then some basketball. I promise this is not just a football program. We will be talking hoops, especially now that the uh, the, the psyche and, and schedule is kind of shifting over to, to men's basketball in particular. Um, Dan, even for us. Even for <laughs> us. <laughs> until, yeah, until something stupid happens and then we're talking about football for an entire show again. But um, Dan, what have you been drinking of late? Um, I've had a pretty active uh, couple of days here. I've been uh, going to a bunch of different venues and breweries down here in Brooklyn, where I'm recording from today, uh, as you might be able to hear in the background. Um, I was at Threes yesterday afternoon. I had their famous last words, which was a collab with someone. Uh, oh, with uh, Bon Appetit, I guess, the magazine, which is interesting, um, which is a really nice uh, uh, farmhouse saison. Um, I had the uh, I had a couple things from JCBC, uh, Kings County Brewery Collective. Their uh, Oktoberfest is a really solid, um, you know, Oktoberfest. What you can expect from there. Um, I also had their Ladybug Man, uh, which is also a collaboration. Um, that one is with Transmitter uh, from Brooklyn. Um, really nice, well balanced sours. Their sours are, are really good in general, uh, and as well as their Fruitbot 4000, which is a Goza sour, uh, also really nice. Uh, from Grimm, I have the Depth of Field, which is a Flanders Ale, um, also very food forward. Um, had a really interesting blend of flavors, uh, because it's very malty, has like a, a little bit of a, what seems like a hoppiness, but also these like kind of cherry notes and kind of aggressive berry notes. And then uh, I had Epigenesis from Finback, uh, another sour, a sour IPA, which is really good. So a lot of sours this weekend, a lot of fruit, fruit forward beers, but uh Solid overall, and I've been uh, kind of making my rounds here in Brooklyn for a couple of days since as we uh, get towards the end of the year here since I had some coupons and other things to take advantage of. Very nice. Yeah, love me some uh, some Flanders whenever I can get some. Um, I, I drank a decent amount um, over the weekend. Had uh, some Citraholic from Beachwood, uh, some Bell's Oktoberfest. Uh, had down Long Beach Beer Lab, which I hadn't been to. I had their LB420 Hazy IPA that was pretty good. 
had uh, Russian Rivers, uh, Defenestration, their uh, Belgian IPA. Had Monkish brewed uh, a West Coast IPA for once. It was uh, entitled uh, Skull Pin, two words. Um, had a dead fish on the uh, on the label. It's a clever nudge at a at formerly independent Ballast Point. Uh, that one was pretty good. Also had their Life is Foggier, um, as well as uh, Hey Boo, a Saison, uh, and uh, the Seer and the Spectacle, also a uh, a Saison from them. Uh, had the best beer of the weekend from them as well, uh, Grande Coffee Cart, um, an imperial uh, milk stout that was super, super good, uh, very coffee heavy, uh, basically tasted like a uh, kind of boozy cold brew, uh, which is really excellent. Um, and also had a really good new uh, West, Co- West Coast IPA from Smock City uh, called Chase and Rays. So crazy, but yeah, did some, uh, bounced around a couple spots yesterday, so got to try out some new stuff, which is great. Very nice. And yeah, the uh, the Syracuse football teams definitely made me want and need to drink more of late. So thanks yeah, for that. I mean, unfortunately, Saturdays are uh, not the best drinking days for me as I do work in college football at large. But uh, I definitely had a beer uh, before I started working while watching the uh, beginnings of the collapse before I had to fully commute into the office. So uh, good times. <laughs> All right, now hopefully to some better uh, times. The uh, Syracuse men's basketball team. Um, SU will tip off against the re- defending national champion, uh, Virginia Cavaliers, on Wednesday night, uh, 9 p.m. Eastern time on ACC Network. Um, if you don't have ACC Network, apologies in advance. You're probably going to be pretty annoyed this year. Um, if you do have it, congrats. You'll probably be seeing SU quite a bit uh, between ACC Network um, and the ESPN family of, uh, of linear television networks or streaming, whichever your uh, go-to option is. But Virginia is a daunting opponent early on. They are in the top 25. They are the defending national champs. Um, however, they do kind of hit reset um, across the roster. So I think that provides some sort of opportunity for Syracuse. I think getting Virginia in week one, and this is something that like, you know, Tony Bennett's mentioned too, like getting, especially in game one, like, getting Virginia this early is about as good as, as you could ask for and getting them at home even better. Um, SU is going to have a really kind of raucous environment for like for the opener. I think having some Virginia players that haven't necessarily played there um, is, is pretty solid. I'm not going to predict in, I'm not going to predict an upset win, but I, I am more optimistic than perhaps I normally would be in this game given, again, the, the early timing and the fact that, that Virginia turns over a lot from last year's squad. Yeah, I mean, I think you're going you're gonna to see a really well-coached team. You're going to see a team that understands at least conceptually how to attack the zone. Virginia's done it incredibly well, probably about as good as any ACC team since we joined the league. Um, but they do replace a lot. There's, there are going to be a lot of new names, um, as you expect from a uh, team that won a national title. And obviously, basketball doesn't really matter if they're senior-laden or freshman-laden. Like, there's a heavy turnover if you have that kind of success. Um, Jay Clark is like, I thought had some, some really impressive moments in this last year. Uh, he's solid. He's just like that classic, uh, Virginia, you know, scrappy point guard that they've had a lot of really good passer. Um, and then the other big name that I think you'll probably recognize is, uh, Mamadi Diachite, uh, who had some nice names in this last year, but isn't like the, I don't know, apparently he's, he's kind of working his jumper, but he's more of like the, the grinded out in the middle, uh, play hard defense, solid rebound and, and inside presence, power forward. So 
Um, not like the scariest type of player against Syracuse outside of him, like punishing us on the boards, but overall, like, I think you're, you're seeing uh, a lot more uh, new big minutes for guys who, you know, obviously played roles last year, but uh, weren't going, weren't like the guys that were headlining the national title game. I think Casey Morrell, uh, probably started shooting guard. He's a freshman. Um, Braston Keys, like he was on the team last year, if I remember correctly, but he's uh, taking up a bigger role. So it's not like uh, it's it's going to be a, a new look team, and and I think there is there should be an advantage in, in there for us, um, especially with playing like a, a pretty specific system. Yeah, I think that's the key. Obviously, like no pun intended on Braxton Key there. Um, <laughs> you know, SU has new players themselves, but a lot of those guys did see extended minutes last year. Um, we don't necessarily have the same collection of proven scorers uh, that we did last year, even if it was just a short group. Um, I, I think, yeah, the key for Syracuse is always uh, having a, a, a repeatable and, and, and you know concrete system that gets implemented year over year. Uh, I, I think that that definitely you know tends to an advantage here, um, even if it also allows UVA to better kind of prepare for it on the offensive end at least. I think for me, you know, Key is 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 the big worry um, because I think, you know, he's a really good rebounding three. Um, he's a player who definitely fits the mold of like dynamic, um, you know, small forwards that played in the system before. I think while, you know, the, the system that UVA runs isn't necessarily as renowned as the 2-3 zone, whatever, like pack line is, is legit as a, as a defensive scheme. And I think their offense um, also is just a little bit more adaptable. Um, that maybe S uses and has kind of allowed them to plug and play similar types of players in uh, without much of a drop off year over year. So like, you know, th- there's plenty of guys that you can be concerned. I think, you know, Clark is, is probably like the big, big name, but to me, like key being really good rebounding three um, is potential. Oh, sorry. Clark and, uh, Daikite are the two big names, but to me, Key could potentially create the biggest problem because um, he's just like one of those versatile players who can who can beat us a lot of different ways, and and that's the type of guy who against UVA in the past has really been frustrating. Yeah, I, I think uh, it'll be interesting because of, a I don't think Virginia's going to hit eighteen twenty five threes against us, um, which is a relief. I was at that game; uh, wasn't the, wasn't the most fun I've ever had at the dome. Um, but it, I think it's it's a lot easier to uh, play your second game and actually like have that live game experience in the zone than like obviously every coach has like the ideas and the fundamentals of how they want to beat it. But until you've actually done it, it's it's a bit daunting. So Clark has obviously played against it. Tite's played against it. Other guys played some minutes, but um, it wouldn't shock me if this is a really close one because obviously Syracuse you could say the same exact thing going against the pack line. Um, even if the pack line, I, I do think like you said, is a little more adjustable. Um, it's it's going to be. It wouldn't surprise me to see a kind of a low scoring game, especially considering it's the first game for both the first actual game for both teams, and it's the dome where people don't shoot well a lot of the time. So um, it wouldn't be a huge surprise if we rang in the college basketball season with a game played in like the high fifties or the sixties, which may not be what the ACC network wants, but at least you know maybe it'll be competitive. Yeah, I mean, I think first and foremost, the ACC is probably looking for something competitive over anything else. Um, I, I think. Like, if you want SU and UVA on national television, you're probably not banking on um, a game that's going to, you know, light up scoreboards necessarily. And, you know, maybe that's a branding error. Uh, but I do have a feeling that, um, you know, everybody's kind of saddled up for something that's probably like a 65 to 61 um, type game. 
I, I think that where this game gets really interesting for SU is going to be, uh, you know, there's no, there's not necessarily a proven um, offensive presence inside. I think uh, Gary A could become that um, depending on the lineup we play. I think Dolajai has been hot and cold inside, but is actually a pretty good like shooter in general. Uh, I think Barama Sadibe, when healthy, uh, has proven himself to be pretty good inside. But again, proven being the key word, like we haven't had that consistency um, from any of those guys. And really to me, like it's going to be interesting to see a team that uh, is slated to probably shoot a lot more from outside, how they do. And if they're able to kind of, you know, do what most teams don't, which is just like outshoot, um, outshoot UVA and outshoot the pack line defense. Um, it does seem like, this could be an interesting challenge for the, for this crew. And it could be this game, whatever we see on offense from SU might not look like anything we see from SU on offense in the ensuing like four or five games. Yeah. I do think it presents a pretty interesting opportunity where like if Syracuse was to win this game, especially if it does so with the hot shooting that I think we might get throughout the year, since that's going to be such a major focus. Um, it's obviously not the biggest deal to do this in November, but I could see, you know, Oh, you know, if, if they win and then they, I don't remember exactly how the schedule uh, shakes out, but if we, get a win over Virginia to open plus whatever else we have after that. Like you're probably going to see Syracuse jumping in the top 25 right away and, and get that kind of hype we haven't had in a little bit. Yeah. I mean, realistically, you don't have to get ahead of ourselves. If Syracuse finds a way to beat UVA, uh, I mean, they'll definitely be in the rankings uh, come next week. I would think uh, when they, uh, when, when they face Colgate in their non-conference opener, um, they get a week off actually between the the UVA opener and and Colgate. Colgate's actually slated to be pretty good this year. They got a vote in the uh, in the preseason poll, which was surprising. They've had a they've had a nice little run as of late. Um, I don't know. I remember from like you know go five years back, and they were like one of the worst teams I think in all of the all of D one. So they've they've definitely taken things up a rank, which is nice for us because you know they were when they were hanging around like the three hundreds in RPI back when that was the metric. It wasn't exactly uh, the best for us. We play them every year, but it is nice that they've kind of upped their game. I think Colgate athletics in general has kind of upped their game. I feel like in the last couple of years, I mean, like Colgate football's become um, they were a pretty impressive F- group. FCS power last year, I think they fell off a bit this year, but like, they're still playing pretty well this year, though. I think. I mean, they, they they did us a solid and beat Georgetown just the hell of it last week. And and yes, that is appreciated always. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, anytime you can beat Georgetown, you have to do it. So correct. Yeah, I'm just kind of looking at the team for for Colgate in particular. Um, this is just a con—I mean, it's a concerning group because I think there's there's a lot of guys. We don't have to like get into this game because we're gonna have another episode uh, before it. But yeah, Colgate does concern me a little bit. But yeah, if we beat Virginia, I think we are ranked going into the Colgate game, which should provide um, a, a nice new layer to the uh, to the proceedings there. Um, then we get the Seattle game, Cornell, Bucknell, OK State uh, before either Ole Miss or Penn State. Like realistically, um, if we beat Virginia, the next big challenge is probably either at Georgia Tech or at Georgetown. Um, those games are back to back in early in early to mid December. Um, I'm not going to get ahead of myself, but like I mean, we talked about this in the season preview too. like if SU takes care of business and looks better early, um, they could potentially go into January, like, you know, unbeaten or with a loss. And that definitely changes the entire tenor of this season and puts us in a great spot considering how rough the end of this uh, schedule goes. Yeah. I mean, I think like the non-conference schedule doesn't bring a ton of like intrigue in terms of name opponents, 
with like, you know, obviously you have your Georgetown, but you also have like your your tournament being with Okie State and then either Penn State or uh, the other team. Uh, it was uh, it's Oklahoma State and then it's either the, the Penn State and who winner? It's um, Penn State and Ole Miss. Ole Miss. Yeah. Basketball so powerhouses. Yeah, not exactly the uh, like the Floridas and Kansases that we have like years, years past, but if you can roll up like an undefeated record, like or one loss if you lose to Virginia, I still think there's a lot. There's there's some good to be had there, and there's enough in the ACC where you know you get these things banked, and then you're in you're in decent shape going forward. Um, and I think for this team, like experience is just gonna be huge because it's such a young group, and it's it's kind of a different group than we've had for for years now. So. Ultimately, like it might not be the worst worst year to have this kind of weird, non super exciting non con because there's a lot of growth to be had. Oh, 100%. And I think, too, like getting these guys, you know, that they, they, they don't go on the road until late November, but um, two games at Barclays gets them a little more used to um, a different gym, even if it's not going to be all that like hostile of crowd. <laughs> Um, against those teams, uh, getting them on the road at Georgia Tech, on the road at Georgetown, like Georgetown, another venue that's not necessarily going to be a hostile environment. Um, but just getting them playing elsewhere uh, before conference, well, before conference play starts in earnest, obviously Georgia Tech's conference team, um, I think is going to be interesting. I'm looking forward to seeing how this season shakes out. Always am, but I think in particular, there's just a lot of weirdness to this year that might that may or may not be a bad thing and we'll know i think by january whether it like which way it's going to go yeah it's uh i'm, I'm certainly excited for it if not if, if not only because uh need something to be excited about with how football is shaking out yeah uh dan before we go just a quick note um who do you think is going to win between syracuse and virginia i like almost talked myself into an upset i will take virginia to play it safe but i i think I haven't seen a line yet. I don't know if it's out. I assume there's one out somewhere. I haven't seen it. Um, I'm going to go – I'll go Virginia, but I'm going to go uh, 67-63. So I think it'll be a tight one. So close to my final score. I was going to go Virginia as, 61. As we, yeah, always. <laughs> as we do. Five years in, this is a hive mind uh, podcast at this point. I'm going to go Virginia 67, uh, Syracuse 61. I think it stays pretty tight until the end when uh, – when SU just can't get enough shots to fall. Honestly, like I would say I wouldn't be thrilled with that, but hanging with the national champs, even like kind of a rebuilding national championship team, I think wouldn't be the worst. Like I think people should understand that and like get around, wrap their heads around like, oh, they bundled with them. It was competitive. I think that would, wouldn't be the, the end of the world. Oh, no, definitely not. Yeah, I think that it's something you can sell in um, to people going forward. Yeah, it's just that, like a legit game past like the final timeout. Yeah, I mean, that's really all I can ask for right now. Um, again, we're, we're going to learn plenty about this team as the weeks go forward. We'll be sure to talk about it plenty as the weeks go forward. Uh, we'll also have, I think it's running either every week or every 10 days. Um, Bobby and James will have their uh, Syracuse basketball podcast. Uh, so we'll figure out kind of a cadence there that doesn't rehash topics and like gives you different looks on the team um, and the schedule and all that. Uh, so more on that as the season develops. Dan, anything else before we depart today? Nope. Hoping, hoping for a, a miraculous turnaround now that uh, the root of all of our problems, Brian Ward, is off. <laughs> <laughs> agreed, agreed. Uh, luckily, uh, we, we got the bye week fighting buys on Saturday. So I, 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 have a, I have some good vibes about our, our odds here. I agree. I do not think we'll lose on Saturday. Hopefully not. <laughs>
on that note, uh, that was Dan. I'm John. Thank you, everybody, for listening to Troy Noons and Absolute Podcast. You can rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, on Megaphone, on Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Overcast, uh, any other place that you listen to podcasts, and go Orange. Go Orange.